Good morning. My name is Dan Shryock. Among other things, I'm the worship pastor at Calvary. And as most of you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been doing a series simply called Why. It's one word, Why. And what we've done is each week we've talked about why we do some of the things that we do. This week we're going to talk about why do we worship and praise. And because of my job here, Pastor Mark asked me if I would um, speak this morning on this topic. So here I am. Usually you see me singing. It's a lot different preaching. Um, pray for me. My wife is doing the same. I know she is. Um, yeah, in our family, she's the preacher and I'm the musician. So um, I think fair play would be next week she'll lead worship. Or not. Um, can I just say I love you guys? I do. Wow. What a what a church. It's an honor to lead you into worship every week. And I just want to let the stand, please. <laughs> I just love you. Um, for my text today to talk about worship and praise. I want to use Psalm 95, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Let's, uh, let's start with there. If you could read with me. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me or read on the screen behind me. Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Father, this morning, we want to hear from you. Lord, really, nobody cares what my opinion is, Lord. We want to know your opinion. We want to know your truth. We want to know it from your scripture. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring revelation as we study your word today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What's in a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Who said that? You want to know who said that? Paul Rose. Who said that? <laughs> That's hilarious. No, Paul Rose did not say that. Well, I'm sure he smells sweet. Um, that line was spoken by Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. Remember, this is one of Shakespeare's most famous lines that ranks right up there. Oh, there's Paul right there. <laughs> that was totally unplanned. That was great. I mean, it ranks right up there with to be or not to be, right? And, and what Shakespeare is trying to say is what you call something doesn't change what it is. It is what it is. Well, before we get started this morning, I want to ask a different but similar question, and that question is, what's in a word? I'm going to be talking about why we praise and why we worship this morning, but before I can really do that, we need to have a common understanding of what I mean when I use those words. Most of you, at some time or another, 
have probably had to sign contracts in your life, and if you haven't, you will. Um, and a lot of contracts have something called a definition section at the beginning. The definition section, I'm looking for Counselor Nestor, if he's here. I don't see him. So, oh, there he is. I can say whatever I want. Um, um, and basically, the, the, the purpose is simply to, to make sure that both parties of the contract have the same understanding when the term is used. So if the term profit or loss is there, you understand how profit or loss are calculated, those, those sort of things. Well, when we use the words praise and worship, we can all in this room have different ideas in our minds of what those words mean. And, and, and to some extent, we, we may all be correct, even if we have different ideas. And that's because words have different meanings, right? You open up a dictionary, and there's usually not just one definition. There's, there's usually multiple definitions. One is not necessarily more correct than the other until you use it in context. And when it's used in context, that's where you need to understand the meaning. For example, I'm going to ask you a question. If I say, is the church a building, you would say, ah, wrong. And I'd say wrong. Here's why I would say wrong, because actually church is an English word. And if you look in the dictionary, it actually says it's a building used for Christian worship. In fact, I, I think probably about any dictionary you can pick up, that's going to be the number one definition. See, when we say the church is not a building, it's people, what we mean is when the Bible uses the word church, it's referring to the people, not a building. It's important that we understand in context what does the Bible mean so, that's what we're going to do right now before I get started. This is our definition section. I'm going to start with praise. Praise is the easier of the two words I'm talking about today. And I'm going to give you a very, very, very simple definition. I'm going to call this Dan's Dumb Down Definition. And please, it's not a reflection on the listeners. It's a reflection on the speaker. It's a verb, and it means tell someone how great they are. Hmm? It doesn't get much easier than that. Um, can we all agree this morning that for the sake of this sermon, that's our definition of praise? Good, good. I'll take that as a rousing agreement. Um, there are a lot of words in the Bible that end up getting translated into praise, and they all have um, basically the same meaning, but there are subtle differences to them. For example, a, um, a word in the Bible that means praise may refer to boasting. It may refer to celebrating. Um, there are a couple words in the Bible that get translated as praise that mean to lift the hands towards. And sometimes, actually, instead of praise, you, you may actually read in some translations about lifting your hands. And then there are musical terms in the Bible that are translated as praise that refer to singing or playing musical instruments, that sort of thing. And as you read your Bibles, you know, we all read different translations, it seems. You may see even different words. Some of these scriptures that I referenced this morning, the praise, you may have a translation that says bless, or a translation that says exalt, or extol, or certain things like that. Um, they're all very similar in, in uh, terminology. The important, the important thing I want to um, gather from this is that praise is expressing how amazing someone is or it's responding to the amazing things that somebody has done. Now, 
the other thing we're going to talk about this morning is worship. And I found that among Christians, at least, this one is a little slippier, slipperier. It's, it's more slippery. Um, English is my first language. It really is. It's a little more difficult to define among Christians. Worship is. Um, so, first of all, I'm not going to tell you what the dictionary says because the Bible wasn't written in English. I don't think that really serves us particularly well this morning. And what I want to do is look at the Bibles, at the words in the Bible that were translated to worship. And there are two that make up the vast, vast majority of times worship is used. And these, these are, I'm going to use these as representative of what the Bible says about worship. One is a Hebrew word called shaka, and one is a Greek word called proskuneo. So let me start with um, one that can be shaka. It's a Hebrew word, and it means to bow down or to prostrate oneself. Now, anytime this morning, if I use the term bow down or prostrate, understand that doesn't mean to kneel like, like maybe sometimes we come up front of the altar to pray and we kneel. Or um, if you think about a Catholic church, where part of their worship is they have kneelers and they kneel down. Um, that's kneeling. To bow or to prostrate oneself means to touch your forehead to the ground. It's bowing down as low as you possibly can, and it is the ultimate act of showing deference or homage or obeisance, um, which is the second part of this definition. Um, and then it's always used in reference to some sort of gesture, some kind of action, physical action. This appears as the word worship 99 times in the, in the King James Bible, uh, version of the Bible. Uh, and that's why I say it's representative of what worship means. By far, when you see worship in the Old Testament, by far, you're most likely looking at this word. Um, the other word that, that I want to look at real quickly is proskuneo. And that's a Greek word that we see in the New Testament. The New Testament is written in Greek. And it means to kiss the hand in tokens of so if you think of someone bowing down and kissing the hand of a, of a ruler or a deity, in this case, um, that's what it means. And in the Bible, when he uses this term in the New Testament, it's talked about, again, showing obedience, showing um, um, deference or um, homage to somebody, specifically by kneeling, when we see this in the New Testament. And this word is used 60 times in the New Testament. So again, when you talk about worship in the New Testament, this is predominantly what we are talking about. So, both of these words, this is how I'm going to use them today, are verbs. And this um, definition then that I want to use for worship is a verb meaning to express homage or obeisance. Okay? I'll talk about worship this morning. I'm talking about an action, something that we do, an expression. That's what we're talking about. Um, and it is intentional. Okay? It's very intentional. Now, probably wondering um, why I'm kind of splitting hairs here. And uh, here, here's the deal. Put your seatbelts on. Um, sorry, no seatbelts. New church will have seatbelts. Uh, new building. New building. Scratch it. New building will have seatbelts. Um, it's been very popular in the past few years, and I know a lot of you have heard this, to say, if you ask people what is worship, and they'll say worship is a way of life. Worship is a lifestyle, something in that regard. And i got to tell you, the Bible does not support that. When I read about worship in the Bible, it doesn't support that. 
The Bible is talking about an action. It's an expression. It's doing something specific. That's what the Bible talks about. And, and here's why I even mention that, because I, I, I kind of sound like I'm splitting hairs, but I know people who have used this um, holistic, um, universal word for, for, for worship, generic term for worship, as an excuse not to worship. Yeah? I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, um, but I've seen that. And, and let me give you a specific example. We even had a person on staff here several years ago. He no longer is on staff. Um, but as a worship leader, I would see him out in, in, in the service, his hands folded, and looking around, and he would never engage. And I asked him why he never engaged in worship, and he looked at me and he said, well, I believe that the way I live my life is worship. And I'm sorry, the Bible just does not support that. Worship, every time it's demonstrated in the Bible, is some kind of action, something that we do. So, why do we praise? Why do we worship? It's a good question. That's the crux, the crux of our message this morning. I want to take a look at a progression that we find in Psalm 95. That's the scripture we started with this morning. Um, this progression can be broken down into two parts. The first part is praise, and the second part is worship. So I'm going to start. Let's, let's look at the first part. Psalms 95, Psalm 95, verse 1, starts with the phrase, Sing for joy to the Lord. These are two separate terms that I want to address just briefly. I want to take note of these. Um, first of all, there's no way around it. There's no way around it. The Bible clearly connects praise with singing. It does. Um, and in just the Psalms alone, there are 66 references to singing, singing praises, singing for joy, singing God's glory, singing of His great love. It's God's people. God just wants us to sing. We're supposed to sing. That's, that's one of the ways we praise, and it seems like one of the predominant ways that we praise. And here's the deal. I don't recall, and I've done some studying on this, I don't recall any place in the Bible where it says, sing to God if you're a good singer. Yeah. Guys, this is an American Idol, Okay. Nobody is judging you. It's not America's Got Talent. No one's going to hit the X, you know. Thank goodness Howard Stern isn't here. Um, God doesn't care. You know, he just wants to hear you sing. To you, or to him, I mean, your singing is beautiful. It is beautiful when it glorifies God. And not only are we supposed to sing, but, but here's maybe a little trickier part of that phrase. It says to sing for joy. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Do you think that means that every time we praise God in song, every time we are singing joyfully? Illuminate on that. Let that roll around in your, in your head for just a second. Because I don't think so. And let me explain. Let me explain what I mean. I think we can put a lot of condemnation on people who are going through struggles if we always expect them to come in and put on their happy face no matter what's going on. 
And, you know, I'm not just talking about, you know, there are people who are clinically depressed that are really, really struggling. They're clinically depressed. There are people who are just going through a rough patch in their life, you know, and, and circumstances, their health and their finances and their relationships and, and who knows what have gotten them down. And they're going through these struggles, and these kind of struggles are real. Everyone goes through things, and people handle those times differently. And, you know, I know there's an element of truth in this concept, fake it until you make it. You ever heard that? I'm sure you have. You see, you kind of put it on until you actually get there, and sometimes that works. It, it does. Um, but I'm telling you, I think there are times when it's simply okay not to bubble over with joy. Okay, I'm going to release you, give you a little freedom. Sometimes it's okay. And I'm not, I don't think I'm just saying my opinion on this. In James, the fifth chapter of James, James 5.13, it says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. See, I think what the psalmist means is you should sing, you are supposed to sing for joy when you are supposed to sing for joy. Does that make sense to you? Um, David knew more hardships, and I'm talking about King David who wrote many of the psalms. He knew more hardships than anyone in this room. I, I don't care how rough your life is, David probably knew more hardships than you. In fact, I know he did. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 30, and, and I love this scripture. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. They make no doubt of it, there will be nights of weeping. There will. There will be seasons of weeping. But don't dwell there continually. You can't stay there continually. When the morning comes, sing for joy. Listen to what James wrote. If you are happy, sing songs of praise. Verse 1 goes on to say, Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Okay, now this gets a little dicey, because I'm sure there are people here who are thinking, it's not right to shout in church. Not respectful. Um, would, it feel, would it make you feel better if I told you the King James Version said make a joyful noise? Feel a little better about that, huh? Remember how I started this message? A rose is a rose. Okay. The psalmist is saying shout. He's saying shout. And you know, this, this happens like ten times in the book of Psalms where the psalmist says to shout to the Lord. I want to tell you that it really is okay to shout joyfully in a praise and worship service. Now, it's not okay. It's actually encouraged. So feel free. Um, the next verse, let's keep moving on. The next verse says, Come before the Lord with thanksgiving and extol or praise Him with music and song. Again with the music. Again with the music. Giving thanks, while not synonymous with praise and worship, is inextricably linked with them throughout Scripture. It's linked throughout Scripture. Um, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, his celebration included giving thanks, 
praise, and worship. Nehemiah was the man who rebuilt the temple um, when, when um, the Jewish people came back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had a great celebration and dedication service when he did that. And on top, I'm sorry, he didn't rebuild the temple. He re rebuilt the wall. He rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. And he had a great celebration um, to dedicate the wall. And on top of the wall, he had two large choirs, and their job was to give thanks. If we jump to the back of the book, Revelation, we see this scene that John describes, and there are these four creatures flying around the throne of God. We know them to be the seraphim. They're flying around the throne of God and they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But then he says, he goes on to say that they give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Again, the point I'm trying to stress is that thanking God is part and parcel to praising God and to give him glory and honor. Let's go on in the Psalms. Verse 3 says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So why do we praise God? God is a great God. In fact, he says he is the great God. That's why we praise Him. Um, praise is a natural response when we realize and acknowledge God's awesomeness and find ourselves in His presence. God's transcendence, think about this. God's transcendence is so absolute, so all-consuming that we can't even begin to fathom it. In fact, David said this, um, in Psalm 145, verse 3, he said, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That's how amazing he is. And we praise him with thankfulness because, let's look at Psalm 106, verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. There's two reasons right there. God is good. God's love endures forever. And it's amazing. You see this phrase repeated often throughout the Old Testament. You see it, of course, in Psalms. You see it in Chronicles. You see it in, in, um, in, in Kings and Samuel. This phrase talking about how God is good and His love endures forever. In fact, Andy of the band sang this morning a variation of that, right? Your love is relentless. Yeah, we sang it this morning goes on and on. It's, it's this unfailing love. Psalm 107 verse 8 says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, again, talking about his love, and his wonderful deeds for mankind. So the third reason you see behind me to, to, to praise God with thankfulness is because of the wonderful things he's done. And, and if you start listing them out, folks, you can be here all morning. The things that God has done. My point is, the Lord is a great God. And for this we praise him. And we do it with thankfulness because he's good, his love endures forever, and he does wonderful things. Okay, now the psalmist is going to turn his attention from praise to worship. Let's read verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Why? For he is our God. 
We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is really shifting gears. The psalmist is really shifting gears here. Um, worship is probably not likely to enjoy she- to involve shouting and rejoicing. You know, when you think of praising and that rambunctious kind of celebratory thing, worship is not likely to go there. Um, worship implies a reverence. It implies submission to a sovereign God. And in the Bible, as we've already talked about, it usually implies bowing down and prostrating oneself before, before the Lord. After we have sung, after we have shouted, after we have praised, the psalmist tells us to take this last step down in worship. Back when, um, back when Saturday Night Live first started, Chevy Chase used to do the news segment, Weekend Update. I don't know if you remember, anyone remembers how it used to start it. Hi, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. It was funnier when he did it, trust me. That's not my point. This is my point. God is God. this is a great, a great place to start when we talk about worship. I believe that regular worship keeps us in our proper relationship with God by continually reminding us that God is God and we are not. This verse we just read from Psalm 95, He is our God. Why worship? Come and bow down and worship. Why? For He is our God. We are His people the sheep under his care. Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And he gave them an example, a sample prayer. And he started it with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His prayer, which we now call the Lord's Prayer, you know, began with calling God our Father. But I want us to understand, um, even though this signifies a close, family relationship with God. God is not just like any other father. He is what? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And His name, whether it's Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, is to be hallowed. His name is holy. We should never, ever forget to approach God, God the Father, with reverence and with awe. Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord both as a loving Father, but worship Him as a holy God. I love it when books start off with a great first line. You know, there are a few memorable ones that I just love. If I were to say to you, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, which book is that? Tale of Two Cities. If I were to say, call me Ishmael, what's that? Moby Dick. <clears throat> Come on, folks. I have a literature lesson this morning. Here's one. There's a book that begins, In the Beginning, God. That was good. Several years ago, a man named um, Pastor Rick Warren 
wrote a book I bet most of you are familiar with, The Purpose Driven Life. I think that book has one of those classic first lines. Yeah, someone, someone remembers it, I know you do. It's a four-word sentence and it says, it's not about you. Love that line. What a great way to start a book. If I could ever think of a good first line, I'd write a book. Pray with me about a first line. It was a dark and stormy night. Um, you know, he's talking about how our purpose in life is bigger than ourselves. But I'm going to reappropriate that line this morning to talk about praise and worship. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about the Lord. Praising and worshiping God is all about Him. It's not about being personally blessed or having things tailored to our personal tastes. It's about glorifying Him. Psalm 115, verse 1 says this, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the praise and worship uh, we see them as acts that are for the benefit of the believer. None of the reasons that we just read in Psalm 95 for praising and for worshiping, none of them mentioned that we do it for our personal gain or personal benefit, did they? It's all about God the Father and Christ Jesus His Son. However, I will acknowledge this. When we praise God and when we worship Him, and when we, when we are in His presence, and His Holy Spirit is moving. Wow. What a place to find blessing. It's an awesome thing to be in that place with our God. I want to point out that it's not the goal, however. It's an added benefit. I think we can get ourselves kind of sideways if that becomes the goal. We always have to remember it's all about Him. It's not about us. I want to close today by talking about what my vision for praise and worship is at Calvary Church. 1 Corinthians 14, 24-25 says this, If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, what Paul is talking about here, he's talking to the church at Corinth, and they had some problems. Um, there were things that were a little out of order at the church in Corinth. And one of the things that, that Paul addressed was how they conducted their services. I think you could say they got a little crazy at times, people doing things all over the place, doing different things, and people speaking in tongues, just speaking out, and there's no interpretations. And he says, you know, people come in think you're crazy. And he's trying to give some order how things should be done. And when that happens, he says, people are going to fall down and say, God is really among you. Well, I was reading this at home last fall. And have, have you ever had one of those times where, where you're reading a scripture that you've read many, many times, and all of a sudden, boy, there's like a lightning bolt that just hits you like it never has before. That's what happened to me that morning as I was reading. I mean, I felt like God was going to knock me out of my chair. I, I sensed so strongly 
I sensed so strongly that God was saying, this is what praise and worship at Calvary Church should be like. That even the person who doesn't understand, who doesn't know Christ, who's not churched, when they come in, they're going to say, surely God is among you. Um, so since then, this has become my vision. This is my vision. As, as, as the head worship pastor at Calvary, this is my vision for praise and worship here. When a person who is not a Christ follower joins us in worship, they will say, God is really among you. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? Can you imagine how amazing that would be? And I'm not saying it's just, it's just future tense. It hap- this already happens often. This already happens often. Can you imagine if it happened every time God's people got together and we praised and worshipped Him? That even an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know anything about Christ, is like, man, you guys have something here. Now, I, I think there are a few things, actually there are several things probably that need to happen for that to take place, but among them that I want to mention, first of all, it does require that as worship leaders, that we as worship leaders spend time praying, seeking God's face for what we're doing and asking for His anointing, because it has to start there. And that's on us, right? Me, Jenny, Andy, that's on us. It also requires, I believe, that believers must engage in authentic worship and authentic praise when they come into this place. And now I'm looking at you guys and me. What do I mean by authentic? Well, you know, it's so easy to drift, right? It's so easy to get our minds off of something else and you know, we're scrambling to get here on time and get the kids down to the children's department and, and do whatever. And I don't even know. I've been here for so many hours. It's still raining out there, you know, coming in with the rain. And, um, and it's easy to drift. But when we are authentic and we're singing words and we make those words our own, we personalize those. These are my words. And I'm singing them to my God and my King. People see that. And the other thing I think that is important is, is that we have to worship and praise in biblical ways. There is no room, there's no room in our worship services for weirdness, you know, stuff that's extra biblical. If it's not biblical, folks, we don't want to be doing it. We don't need to make up any new stuff. God has told us how to praise Him. God has told us how to worship Him. And I challenge you, if you ever think we do something here that is kind of out there, and boy, that's not biblical, please tell me. Please tell me. Talk to me about it. So here's my question. Will you join me in seeing this vision of praise and worship fulfilled at Calvary Church? Yeah? Praise the Lord. last thing I'm going to say is, is just if you are here and you are not, you would not call yourself Christ's follower. You're here and, and maybe you were invited or maybe you've just wandered in or curious about what's going on, then you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower. We want to show you 
we want to show you how Christ's followers worship. We do. And that's my pledge to you. We're going to show you how Christians worship and praise their King. But I want to ask you, I want to tell you this as well. The reason we praise and worship the way we do as Christians is that um, we believe man was created to have a relationship with God. God is our creator. He loves us. However, we're all guilty of sin. No matter how good we are, no matter how good we are, we're all guilty of sin. And because of that, we cannot have the relationship with God that he wants us to have because he's perfect. Perfection cannot coexist with sin. So, because He loves us so much, the song we sang this morning, His love is relentless. His love endures forever. Because of that relentless love, He sent His Son, because His Son was perfect. And His Son paid the penalty for our sin on the Roman cross. He was punished for us. In our place, He died. But he didn't stop there. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive right now. He conquered death. He forever destroyed the power of death. We no longer have to be under the power of death. And if death is defeated, think about it. There's nothing in life we can't overcome. So restoring a right relationship with God um, is not about obeying a set of rules. It's just about accepting that Christ died, He rose from the grave, and He's the Lord of everything. Um, that's what John 3.16 is about. When it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Um, and that life, that eternal life belongs, uh, begins, begins here on earth. doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. People still get sick. People still die. Problems still come. But life in Jesus is the most joyful, peace-filled existence you can imagine. Um, you see, the God we know loves you fiercely. He loves you relentlessly, so much that He gave His Son to die for you. And that's what most of the people in this room have discovered. We've discovered that. And I want to tell you, you can discover that. If you are not a Christ follower, you can discover that today. This is what it says in the Bible. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. You can do that today. Today can be the day you begin a new journey, a new life in Jesus. Let's all bow our heads. I want to ask you right now. If you've heard this stuff, then maybe it's intrigued you because praise and worship is kind of new to you never really become a Christ follower, right now we can change that. Right now, we can change it. You've been putting it off, we can change that. We can do something about it right now. Two things you need to do. Two things you need to do. Believe in your heart. First, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. I'm going to ask you real quickly, who wants to do that this morning? Raise your hand. Who wants to do that this morning? after me. It's everyone pray. It's everyone pray so everyone can don't feel uncomfortable. Let's pray. Dear God, I want to find what others here have found. 
I know that like everyone in this room, I'm guilty of sin. And like everyone in this room, I need a Savior. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe you raised him from the dead. I want to live a new life in Jesus. Change my heart to be more like you. Fill me with your joy and peace. Help me to live for him who died for me. Thank you for this amazing gift.